0: The the principle for me is morphing into your future self.
1: <laughs> now you've got this picture of a morph. You okay, get this picture of like pointing at the chalk
0: and grabbing it. Exactly.
1: The Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. Brown. Matt Brown, Matt Brown <laughs> Hey guys, so it was 2007. The recession at that time had not yet hit and markets were booming. Auto Trader magazine at that time sold 108,000 copies each month. And it had so many pages that the company's printers needed to import special equipment just to bind it. And even then, the magazine was capped at approximately 1,000 pages. Business couldn't have been better. And yet, the CEO, George Minney, and his management team decided to completely pivot from a print publication to a digital and tech business, against the advice of highly paid consultants. It was a huge risk, but George knew it would be even riskier to rest on their laurels and do nothing. Truly innovative and disruptive businesses know that to survive and thrive, business models need to be continuously adapted to current and potential future market conditions – more than that, they need to lead the innovation curve. History is littered with companies, large and small, that ignored this pivotal role. But Auto Trader South Africa wasn't going to be one of them. In this episode, I chat to George Minnie, the CEO of Auto Trader, about the details supporting this story and how entrepreneurs can reinvent their businesses to remain relevant and ultimately survive the threat of disruptive competition. And pay particular attention to the backstory to how this interview came about with both of us being published in the August edition of Entrepreneur Magazine. So, without further ado, enter George Minnie. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. I have George Minnie with me. On today's episode, he's the CEO of Autotrader. So how's it, George? How's it, Matt? How are you? Very well, thank you. So a little bit of a funny backstory here. So uh, I've got a little bit of a competitive jealousy happening. Um, So George is on the front cover of uh, Entrepreneur Mag uh, this month in August,
0: and I was only on page 26. Well, I don't know if you can call it only, because uh, I think I was only on page 20-something about a year and a half ago, so. (laughs) (laughs) Jealous nonetheless. But my time will come. I hope.
1: Um, okay, cool. So let's uh, get the elephant out the room. So our burning platform today is called eat or be eaten, and really the context here is around you know uh, these very highly charged words like disruption and innovation and so forth. But what's interesting about the auto trader story in this case is that you guys literally reinvented yourselves. Um, And this is the whole gist of the article in the Entrepreneur Max. If you guys haven't checked it out, I highly recommend buying a copy and getting the the kind of the teaser because this is the meat and the potatoes, as you well know. (laughs) (laughs) So I like to talk about disruption and innovation from a kind of an industry level perspective first because... In my view, I think the warning signs of disaster are there one to three years before disaster
0: actually strikes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I yeah, mean, you have you, you, you got to see the the warning signs, um, and, and and it's what I what I speak about in that article is, uh, you know, we see we saw the warning signs coming, even if those warning signs are from an international perspective. And uh, one of the things I say quite often is that we're very fortunate in South Africa because we have. Uh, almost a crystal ball it's not going to go exactly down that road but you have some sort of idea of what's coming uh, especially in the digital world because uh, the rest of the first world countries um, or the first world countries should i say are um, already there and it's just a matter of how do we navigate to that point what were your warning signs what did you see in the markets So, the first warning sign from a print product point of view is uh, copy sales flattening Mm -hmm. now, um, or circulation flattening. Often, I think what publishers do is they see their circulation flattening, and we were in at the time about five and a half thousand retailers and uh, in South Africa and we were publishing once a week we were publishing the magazine once a week and uh, uh, into five five and a half thousand retailers and um, the first warning sign was the um, uh, magazine sales were starting to flatten. Now, often what publishers do, and, and, and we, re- we research this and we, we, we dug into the detail of what I'm about to say, but what they do is they, they think that, oh, hold on a second. If my magazine sales are flattening, I'm in the wrong retail stores. So they go about trying to re-engineer their existing business. And um, fortunately, while we looked at that, we realized the um, the reason these magazine sales are flattening is because our our internet traffic was starting to climb. And uh, it wasn't a case of one consumer being a magazine consumer and another consumer being an internet consumer. The consumers were actually moving.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, that old analogy, print is dead. And if they don't know it yet, they will. I mean, was that kind of like a, a philosophy that you would would have subscribed to
0: back then? Um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have gone on to say print is dead uh, because I think there is still today a lot of niche environments or, or, or niche content that can be delivered via print. Um, in in our day, uh, from a classified point of view, print was dying and it took 10 years to, to actually die and if you if you think about it the first thing to go should be classifieds and the reason is everybody does a Google search and uh, uh, and then you you, you want uh, almost immediate gratification um, and you want to find what you're looking for straight away whereas other kinds of content like editorial I think have a longer shelf life because uh, it's more of a case of sitting on your couch reading it uh, you, you're consuming it not with an intent to buy uh, whereas where there's an intent to buy something um, you want it immediately and you want to know that it's available immediately and a magazine can't give you that yeah. I, I'd
1: like to talk of it in my case with Matt Brown Media and podcasting This kind of like the lean forward versus the lean back experience. So the lean back experience is essentially what the print publication would, the intent of that print publication is to say, listen dude, if you have some free time and you're interested potentially just to browse you know what's potentially out there, you're looking for the next uh, Audi 8 or whatever your type of car is um, and so you have the print ad to kind of effectively browse. But then the strategy changes because the intent when you want to buy that R8 is to search. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And is that, is it, is
0: it, I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand your lean back versus lean forward. Is that yeah. that, that lean that's forward? That's the lean but, forward. Okay. My
1: intent is to go now okay. and find the car that I want. Versus, oh,
0: almost like, uh, you know, the kids of today with their head facing down towards the iPhone it. screen. Okay. Okay. Yes, that's that's exactly funny. right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, I mean, for me, um, uh, uh, we describe your lean back lean forward principle in the form of a funnel that lean back bit people are in the top of the their their car buying journey funnel. you might not be in the market to buy a car today, but at some point in the future you 're going to be in the market to buy a car and you leaning back you 're busy browsing through whatever and uh, reading articles on uh, you know on particular vehicles because you're interested in bmw 3 series vehicles Uh, um, and uh, and we like to put those people in the top of our car buying funnel they're, they're what we refer to as out of market car shoppers they're not in the market to buy a car yet
1: yeah okay cool
0: got it um going back to the
1: need to change i think what was interesting for me was the fact that you were actually advised well let me go back You understood the need to change, right? Internet connectivity was going up. Your print sales were going down. Generally, um, I find the kind of key criteria for identifying when you need to change as a business because you have a business model problem is either when you're losing market share quickly or your top line revenues are declining. But what you're doing from a marketing perspective hasn't changed, that's generally when there's a problem, and if you can back that up with data or at three financial accounts for say two three months, then suddenly there's a that's a warning sign, right? So, so you guys understood the need to change. But what I found very interesting was that there was a high paid uh, consultancy, right? Who um, do you want to mention names? Uh, no, I don't particularly want to mention their name. Damn. Damn it! Damn <laughs> it! <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but that's fine. That's we paid, fine. We paid them know, a lot, name mate. and shame. Name <laughs> and shame. But um, but they actually advised you not to go into the digital space and what their advice was which I found Dumbfounding, looking looking back at that time, was that you needed to have a free print
0: yes. type business, right, or business model, right? So, can you elaborate on that a little bit more sure. for us? So, um, at the time, um, which was uh, back in about uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, uh, we were we were selling um, around about ninety five thousand copies of the magazine a month. Um, you know, we publish weekly and fortnightly, depending on which magazine we're talking about, and. Um, Uh, And we also had three free distribution magazines. They were fighter brands at the time, and they were called Auto Freeway. Um, And uh, our strategy for the cover price on our magazine was not about making circulation money out of the magazine. I mean, a lot of people ask me, well, how did you survive? Because you don't get revenue from the cover price of the magazine anymore. And my answer is always, well… The price on the on the cover of the magazine was a strategic positioning. It wasn't uh, something that we relied on from a revenue point of view. So uh, we wanted people who were serious in the market to buy a car to be buying that magazine. We didn't want tire kickers, and we left the tire kickers to the free magazine, and they could walk into a retail store and pick up the magazine anytime they liked. And uh, uh, and so the consultants who came in here and uh, gave us advice said that one of the reasons the magazine sales had flattened and um, and you know would drop off in the future is because the consumer wants the free product and that it's not the the, the consumer's not yet ready for the internet and they backed it up with all of the infrastructure and uh, uh, and the you know the lack of four G and uh, fast data and all of that stuff which if you read the report looked very viable it looked you know if anybody followed the strategy like that. You know, it would have been would have been good for its time, but it might have lasted only two, three years.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Yeah, I guess you kind of, you almost, because this is my, I keep landing this point, right? I say, like, the, when, as human beings, we don't deal with exponential stuff very well. We like to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but we don't like to go two, four, sixteen, and the next, you know, four, three, four, four iterations to 100, right? We just don't fundamentally understand because we haven't been schooled that way, yeah. you know, through the educational system and just generally the way that the world was. We never had to prepare ourselves for this thing called exponential technology growth, right? Yeah. So, or penetration in your case or adoption of tech or whatever the case is, smartphones, for instance. I mean, there's 30 million of these things now in South Africa, right? According to the latest estimates. So I mean I I don't blame those consultants, but I think it's a trap that many of us as entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs kind of find ourselves in.
0: It's like, do we push this button? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah. And I think I I think to err on the side of caution and conservatism would have been to follow that strategy. Uh, but we were bolder, and uh, we were we were pretty convinced. And uh, and 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 again, uh, you know. Uh, not because we think we are the smartest people on the planet, but because we had this uh, this crystal ball and we were seeing what was happening in the rest of the world. And I think sometimes entrepreneurs get isolated in South Africa. They think that South Africa is an island, um, and it's not. Um, we are traveling at a rate of knots in a particular direction, and, uh, um, and that direction is not going to change very easily. You know, all of the you said thirty million of these smartphones, all of those things are made in a first world country, so it is geared and set up for those future moments. Uh, so, for me, ignoring those 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 trends um, in first world countries is uh, at your own peril.
1: Yeah, I use this analogy of burning ships. So, if you're on it to your point, if you're in if you're a company that's been selling the same thing to the same market for let's say five ten years, right? like auto trader was, potentially even longer, right? There's a bit of a semantics. The point is, same thing, same market for a number of time or years, okay? Because the world's changing so much, you have an option. Your first option is to essentially try and steer that slow ship to address these needs, right? And unfortunately for big companies, it's, it's hard. Fuck. It's impossible, yeah. almost. I mean, it depends on who you're speaking to, right? Inside the bank, they'll say, oh, no, we can handle it, but outside the bank... There's many people that say, "Well, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, for instance, are going to put them out of business, and make them irrelevant. Decentralization of the trust system, the financial system—essentially, these are major, major, fundamentally different ways of doing things." Yeah, you know. So, anyway, going back to my analogy, you can either try and turn that ship slowly, or you can burn it and blow it up. Mm. And that's kind of what you did. In other words, you're not stopping what you're doing as a business overnight, but what you what you're doing is you're making the decision to. Blow that ship up. Stop selling prints and start to get into this new ecosystem called digital.
0: That's exactly what we did. Yeah, Um, you know, and uh, and it 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 took it's it's taken it's taken almost ten years, nine years to to do. But um, but from that particular year onwards, everything we did was focused on digital. Uh, every hire we made was focused on digital. When we uh, uh, made changes internally inside the office, it was with the focus on digital. Print started to become a, a backseat driver uh, in every single decision that the business made, um, and uh, you know, if you want to think about it as blowing the ship up, it took it took nine years to burn. Um, <laughs> but you burnt it. <laughs> but uh, but we essentially burnt it. Um, uh, but we had to be cognizant of the of the very real situation in South Africa. Uh, that while there is this looking glass uh, or or crystal ball in the first world countries we are still a very different nation. We're, you know, the rainbow nation and there's lots of different cultures and there's lots of segments of our market at different stages. So um, if anybody from the outside had to look into our company, and we had it, we 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 had first world, you know, people looking into our company and and saying, hold on a second, you know, this is going to go in 24 months. And uh, and we said no, this is not England and this is not America, um, and it's not going to go in twenty four months because there is still you know Joe Soap out in the rural area and there is absolutely no internet connection. So the magazine held on for that long because of that nuance in a uh, South African in the South African environment. Yeah, uh, I was talking to Nish of Dasani,
1: is the founder and CEO of Giraffe, which is a disruptive mobile based recruitment play. All about the mindsets of VCs in South Africa versus the VCs in uh, the US, and basically we're talking about this point that the foreigners, I you know the the invaders, <laughs> the invaders
0: essentially that that uh, that game just came to mind. What was it called? Um, uh, Space, invaders. Space invaders. Yeah, exactly. On yeah. the ZX Spectrum. I don't know if you. Uh, yes, I used to play showing Shangla age now,
1: George. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but my point being is that. You know, they may understand technology, right? Because they're in developed markets, and of course they get the luxury of being able to execute on new tech because the market's ready for it. Yeah. But when you look at developing markets like South Africa, for instance, you can't shove that philosophy into a South African context. In most cases, you can take bits and pieces that will work, but you can't take the whole thing and try
0: and shove it in and expect yeah. it to scale. Because hey, this is what's happening in a developed market, right? Exactly. Exactly, and that and that's my and that's my whole point is uh, is we've taken nine years to transition the business from a print business to. Digital business in in some other countries it failed. Australia Auto Trader never made it. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the the brand Auto Trader in Australia shut its doors last year. I think it was um, uh, because it just never made the leap from print to digital. Um, and uh, you know, sad in Australia, but uh, you know, the number one digital player um, uh, did a did a really good job. We didn't suffer that fate, and uh, and I think we could have suffered that fate on two fronts uh, if we had taken the consultant's advice and uh, switched to a longer living print product. Some digital player would have taken us out, um, uh, um, and then you know, if we if we decided to move too quickly, which was the other side of the coin, you know, if we if we decided to Burn that ship a lot faster using, uh, you know, faster burning fuel or, or dynamite. Um, we could have suffered from the same fate as well, um, because we would have just lost our user base and uh, and and lost the business. Cool. Let's talk about strategy here, because I think there's a lot of uh, listeners
1: who will be running businesses who've been selling the same thing to the same customer for 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 a certain amount of time, um, and they know. That the writing is coming, or let's put it this way: the the warning signs are there, right? Like we touched on right in the
0: beginning. Well, so, let's let, let's get an example: electric cars. Yeah, totally. Electric. What are electric cars gonna do to the spark plug manufacturer? Uh, irrelevance bomb. Exactly. And the spark plug manufacturer should be beginning to burn their ship. Uh, uh, you know, so yeah, so, they should so be so, selling electrical components for cars, exactly. uh, electric cars, essentially. Or getting into batteries, what, what, batteries or whatever electrical, <laughs> whatever, yeah. uh, uh, elect, electronic technology the future car might have, mm. uh, uh, you know. So, so burning that ship is is important. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, 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 it's cool. That's fine. I love it when people cut me off. It's what I live for
1: here. Yeah? Um, <laughs> but um, let's go in, into the strategy. So, for me, if you get like I, I love, I love defining the question, right? And so. Because if you don't ask the right question, you're never going to get the right answer. So if you're a business like a spark spark plug manufacturer, let's talk strategy. So for me, the question is, does your new strategy or potentially your new strategy and or your existing strategy um, matter enough to the customers that you serve? And is it significantly different enough to your competitors strategy? Makes sense. So, we're not going to talk about your competitors because mm. they, then, you know, let's not go there. Cuck rabbit hole. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but my point being is that they're still doing the same thing. I mean, yesterday, as I was saying before we, hit, we uh, came on air, was, I was talking to um, IT Web journalists yesterday. And one of the questions was going back to like, I talked about podcasts and whatever. And, and, uh, and they were saying, yeah, but, you know, is, is this relevant for us from a data cost and blah, blah, blah perspective? And I said, yeah, but that's not the right question. Mm. It's not the right question. What you should be saying is, "What are your competitors doing? What's the status quo? Define the the convention in the market. and then do the exact opposite."
0: Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because if, if your competitors haven't moved, and to start burning their ship. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so, so, so you know, from a from a, uh, a a competitive point of view, I would always advocate: uh, don't focus too much on your competitors. Because if you focus too much on your competitors, you end up following them. Uh, uh, and then suddenly there will be a spark plug with a gold cap on it. But that's not the strategy. Yeah. No, totally.
1: And there's this is other principle that I love to talk about, which is if you give the market what it wants, you won't
0: give it what it needs. Steve Jobs said that. Did um, he? Uh, no, not that exactly, oh. but uh, uh, um, in, a, in, a, in another way. He said, uh, we give customers what they don't yet know that they want
2: sometimes you just have to pick the things that look like they're going to be the right horses to ride going forward and what if people say you know the ipad is uh uh, crippled in this respect well you know well i'd say two things number one things are packages of of emphasis some things are emphasized in a product. Some things are not done as well in a product. Some things are chosen not to be done at all in a product. And so different people make different choices. And uh, if the market tells us we're making the wrong choices, we listen to the market. We're just, we're just people running this company. We're trying to make great products for people. And so we're, we have the, at least the courage of our convictions to say, we don't think this is part of what makes a great product. We're going to leave it out. Some people are going to not like that. They're going to call us names. It's not going to be in certain companies' vested interests that we do that, but we're going to take the heat because we want to make the best product in the world for customers. And we're going to instead focus our energy on these technologies, which we think are in their ascendancy and we think are going to be the right technologies for customers. And you know what? They're paying us to make those choices.
1: But for me, it's important because you can keep giving the market more spark plugs, or you can preempt what that market's going to need. Hmm. I mean there's that famous quote I mean we are in auto traders offices here we talk about auto trader right but there's that quote with Henry Ford he said you know if you if Henry Ford asked the market what they wanted back then they
0: probably would have said faster horses hmm. right not the automobile exactly you know exactly uh, you know and uh, and 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 how how did Henry Ford pull it off he re-engineered the 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 status quo of the day one of the things henry ford did was um uh the chassis of the motor vehicle took 12 hours to assemble one chassis one chassis which was the reason the cost of the car was so high he reengineered that uh uh production line in a way uh, to in a, in a way that brought the assembly of the chassis down to 1 hour 12 times he reduce the assembly of that chassis by introducing conveyor belts you know and you got to think to yourself well um how does somebody like that actually think it up it's because he's not focused on the, de- the status quo of the day he's focused on um and he's not even focused on what you say like his customers would have said i want a faster horse and none of that is 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 probably in his thinking he's thinking to himself well how do i uh, uh cut the cost of this car significantly enough so that everybody can have one and they don't want a horse. Um. Yeah, But I'm always fascinated to ask the question because I think the insight
1: stands true and it's easy for entrepreneurs, business owners and so forth to understand, right? The difference between giving a market what it needs versus what they want. So, the also another tourism here is that talking about the Henry Fords story is that the market oftentimes doesn't know what they want. So if that is the case, how do you, as a business owner understand what your market is going to need? What's your experience?
0: Um, so you know our experience around what the market is going to need, particularly in 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 uh, our environment in South Africa, is um at the moment, Uh, you know, consumers are searching for vehicles on the internet today. They're then going traditionally to buy the car uh, um, at a dealership or privately or whatever the case may be. Um, What the consumer doesn't know that he wants in the future is to conclude as much of that transaction on the internet as possible. So there's an example of looking into the future and While we know that that is what we want to give our consumer at the end of the day, the consumer doesn't know that right now. And the only reason we know that is because we live, breathe, and eat the car buying journey. Um, uh, You know, so if you uh, often understanding your customer isn't necessarily closely linked to understanding your current products and business. Our customer, the consumer, buys from. Our dealership sellers who sell cars to them but our job is to understand that car buying journey to buying that car from that dealership and in understanding that car buying journey you get insight into well what are the pain what, what, what is the consumer suffering from what are they what is painful for them at the moment and often consumers uh, accept that pain and I think if you solve for those pain points you will get insight into uh, into that into, into the answer f- uh, to that question: Is what can I give this customer that he doesn't yet know that he wants? And uh, and the iPhone's a classic example. Um, people were accepting of buttons on a phone, and um, uh, and you know, but it was painful. It was painful because not everybody liked the layout of the buttons. Not everybody liked the way the the thing. Uh, mechanically operated and here comes a company that uh, that understands how consumers use electronic devices and uh, and puts a touchscreen on the front that you can configure in any which way you want Um, so so understanding that consumer and how he uses that particular product is important to getting insight into giving them what they don't yet know that they want
1: yeah so I think strategically for me, it's more about execution than it is actually about the strategy in many instances. Because, I mean, put it this way, how do you know if your strategy is right or whether it's wrong? Because a lot of the time, if, even if you understand what that uh, that journey looks like for your customer, you're still working on a certain set of assumptions, right? Some can be data-led, but oftentimes it's quite intuitive. And so um, when you think about all of that in context of execution, it's actually about feedback, Right. So if you, I like to use this analogy of, uh, you know, a, a plastic cup. So if you flick the plastic cup, what does it sound like? Dull. But if you're holding a crystal glass and you flick it again, it goes ding. And it's that feedback, that resonance that uh, you get from something that you know is clean and accurate for what that market needs
0: yeah uh you know f- f- so 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 for me, once you understand the consumer of your product and you understand those pain points, so what is painful in the use of whatever uh, that that consumer is using and 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 I think the insight is they don't know that it's painful themselves because at, you know at the moment it's just they're used to it. And, uh, and you've got to figure that out. So I think that's, that's a route to finding out what the consumer doesn't know that he wants. That's the first thing. The second thing is now when you begin making the changes is exactly to your point is you might not get it right yourself because you've got this idea that the, um, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's something that you have to figure out that's painful for the consumer and you start making changes to your business or, your, to, or to your product, um, that change might not be the right one to fix that consumer's pain point. And that constant feedback is important. Uh, I think uh, 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 many businesses, what they do is they, they do a bunch of consumer research. Uh, they get the details or the, the feedback back from the, from the consumer research. Uh, they figure out the pain points of what, of what they need to change in their products they make this big change and they bang, they lump it onto the consumer, and it doesn't work like that. It's this constant iteration of execution, change, execution, change, execution, change. And you're exactly right. And uh, I said in that article, I get bored in a in a, in a room full of ideas. People, we've got to, we've got ideas taller than this building. so 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 it is about execution so once you've figured out okay i'm gonna i'm gonna you know take those ideas because these are the reasons they make sense um uh now we need to start executing in little iterations and getting feedback make execute little iterations get some feedback the other
1: thing there is if you're going to make changes in your business and your business is existing my like my experiences don't make massive changes. Like you have to, you have to grow where you're planted. You know what I mean? Like if you're selling spark plugs, then don't go and sell shoes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you think that that's what the market wants or needs even. Exactly. Right? So you must grow where you planted. So if you've, in other words, if you're an olive tree, become an apple tree yeah do you know what I'm saying
0: yeah grow exactly where you where you plant it I think that's right I mean morph uh, uh, you know I, I don't know if you, if you did you ever watch that cartoon character morph morph yeah uh, uh, a little... the guy with the, with the chalk line thing yes that dude yes. Yeah. His <laughs> name is Mor- morph morph yeah, 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 yeah. you're bringing back a lot of memories it's showing my age um, <laughs> <laughs> mine too, mine too. Um, but anyway so, so, so the, the principle for me is morphing into your future self
1: <laughs> now you've got this picture of I've got okay, this picture of like pointing at the chalk line going
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly
1: Audio Militia is an award-winning post-production facility specializing in the original composition of music, sound design and final mix for a variety of media. Drawing inspiration from a multitude of sources, Audio Militia delivers a one-of-a-kind audio product with military precision With over 15 years of music industry experience in their arsenal, Audio Militia has the dexterity to create and craft all musical requirements, from concept to completion. Boasting four state-of-the-art studios in Bryanston, a satellite facility with four studios in Ferndale, and an accomplished team of composers, engineers, and producers, they are able to cater to all of your needs. They have produced work for clients such as Lexus, Coca-Cola, MTN, Vodacom, Mini, fnb Standard Bank, Wumpy, Old Mutual, Johnny Walker, and Sassol, but just to name a few. So head on over to AudioMilitia.com to find out more about how they can help you produce an unmatched
0: audio experience. but uh, but morphing into your future self is i think what you're talking about and that's uh, f- for me that's that's exactly what we did we morphed into a digital business um but it was it was on purpose there was we didn't fall through it we we actually made uh uh proper decisions that were well thought through that we turned over many times before we made um, that got us to where we are and constant feedback. Mm.
1: So let's dive straight into the nuts and the bolts here, right? So, okay. So you, you understood the need for change. You defined what that strategy was going to be. You understood that there was search was becoming a bigger and bigger component of the the buying journey, or the kind of intent journey, if you want to call it that.
0: Well, I think I think search was always there. Mm. Um, uh, it was just the internet allowed consumers to access all the information at one time and immediately. So, so, so if if if, if that's the definition of of search, um, you know, it just became, uh, you know, if you think back thousands of years advertising was more than likely etched into a rock and then it morphed into newspapers when printing presses came about and now it's morphed into this so search was always there if you wanted to sell your horse uh um, you know you etched the like horse for sale into a rock that everybody always rode past oh, okay there's a horse for sale let me go in this direction to go and find it uh so i think search was always there it's just it fundamentally changed in the way that it was brought to the consumer true but this is my point right so the journey was changing
1: so for me the like like it's almost the the, the because the, I, I don't know i think the the, the way the, the let me rephrase the pace at which the journey of your customer is buying your products and services and evaluating pricing or whatever the case is is changing so fast right so so if you know that that's the case and you're not suggesting, okay, hang on, I'm going to do this new thing. It's a platform that's going to connect essentially sellers with buyers, right? But the, your your audience, your community is essentially consuming a traditional, uh, a different platform, print, right? It's mm. a print magazine, mm. which isn't exactly broken yet. You guys were like making money hand over fist, right? So now you're saying, cool, we're going to dive into the digital um, Play here, and this is what we 're going to hang our hats on for the future the foreseeable future. so my question is what did you learn or what was your approach, anything around that kind of um, story around moving a community that isn 't digitized right from a print um, platform essentially to a digital experience and platform. What did you learn in the process of migrating you know,
0: your your customer essentially? To the digital space. Well, you, uh, in order to answer that question, I have to ask you a question: Which customer? Because AutoTrader trader has two buyers uh, and sellers. Buyers and sellers, and and well, they were both on a different journey. And we could, you know, uh, and it might be a good idea unpack both journeys because they were both on a on a on a, a, a very different at a very different pace. So you have to start, well, so with any platform, it's an
1: MSP, right? It's a multi-sided platform. So you have to, in your case, it was a marketplace, which is a whole thing we, I would love to talk to you about at some point if we have the time, which is right, why marketplaces work so well.
0: But basically, you have a marketplace with buyers and sellers. That's what, what the trader does, right? So, but in a traditional marketplace, your buyer and the seller in an e-commerce marketplace, and you know, I'd love to talk to you about this, but in an e-commerce marketplace, your buyer and the seller are essentially at the same place. In our marketplace, the buyer and the seller digitally uh, were at different places. if you're buying shoes it's an online consumer selling to an online consumer um, uh, whereas in our case it wasn't the case
1: yeah, I think there are connection points there so in the e-commerce space it's effectively suppliers with with um, customers right or buyers. So the supplier in your, if you were to make the jump, how do we find similarities from the e-commerce place uh, and put that into the the auto trader context? The suppliers would be your dealerships, but your private sellers, do you know what I mean? Is kind of where there's a slight point of departure. But having said that, you have to have inventory, right? If you don't, you almost need to say, listen, if I'm connecting buyers and sellers, what's the point in having a million buyers with nothing to buy? content exactly right so exactly
0: so you have to start with the with the sellers right and that's what you did it's a it's a balancing act um uh, you can't start with the sellers if you've got nothing to offer them um why should i go through the pain of uploading my car onto your platform if there's no one there to see it so that circle um uh, and 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 i think it's a it's probably a you know, a point of debate with a lot of people. Where does that circle begin in that marketplace? And you're right, it has to begin with the content. But how do you convince the person to put the content up when you've got nothing to offer them? Incentives.
1: So, I I don't know if if that was what you did. I'll tell you in a second. (laughs) Okay, but my my thing is, if you're going to um, migrate uh, anyone to a new thing, right, a platform... You have to have an incentive for them to move across. Otherwise, they won't do anything. We are human beings after all. The other thing to say is I was interviewing Rand Fishkin, right? So he's he runs SEO Mars out in uh, Silicon Valley. And um, they've got literally a million Paying uh, customers, right? So they launch products, new iterations of SEO type products uh, every other month. I'd hate to be their marketing manager because it's got to suck for that person because yeah. it's just so busy. But I said to him, "Listen, mate. So when you launch new products, like how do you ensure that there's take up of this new stuff?" And he essentially said to me, "Matt, you know what? The interesting thing that we've learned is he says if we have a million customers and we go from version one to version one point one, they don't buy." And I said, "But why is that?" And he said, because we need to go from version one to version two. Otherwise, it doesn't justify the cost of switching because you've got two types of costs. You've got quantifiable costs, which is, okay, it costs me X amount of rands to put an ad in a print magazine versus a digital cost, right? But there's unquantifiable costs with switching. In other words, if I spend that money and I'm happy to do that, will I still get, do you know what I mean, the return for switching to this new thing and this is especially true in businesses and software so for instance it's training it's new data it's the migration of x it's the integration of y it's the the um the uh the, the amendment of our processes those are all types of unquantifiable costs that don't uh you know apply purely to a price point proposition
0: i i, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree um so how we did it and how we made the leap is um is we fortunately had a magazine that was four five six hundred pages thick, uh and uh, and contained roughly eight to ten thousand cars, and the first thing we did was we built systems inside year, and we uploaded all of those cars onto the internet, so so we had content immediately, um as soon as we had content uh uh, uh we 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 started building users around that very limited amount of content once we started building users around that content uh, we said to ourselves well how do we prove that this platform's value is where we say it is and that's where we developed a piece of technology called call tracker um, and 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 we took call tracker and we created value a very valued Differential story between the magazine and uh, and the internet, and then because then we started to realise very quickly that the car buying consumer is way ahead of the dealership and the car seller, and uh, and we had to almost drag them kicking and screaming to the internet, saying to them, we've got ten thousand cars online. Uh, we've uh, uh, developed this uh, piece of technology called call tracker we've uh, this is the kind of value that the internet is 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 giving and um, uh, here's a piece of technology for you to upload the balance of your inventory onto our uh, onto our website in order to take advantage of uh, of this value and that's how it started
1: okay. So what I love about that is that you gave them a reason, right? So the call tracking thing. And what I think is important for us to touch on here is why that was important for you as a business, not just for your customers. So essentially what you were saying was, you know, look, we can track the leads coming through print based by ad and the leads coming in through digital, right? And because you have the data, you're able then to substantiate strategically
0: any, you know, decision making that you need to do as you kind of execute moving forward, right? Right. Absolutely, um, but the, the call tracking technology was about the value. Um, but we could have we could have built that like other um, marketplaces have built it, which is force the consumer to fill in a form, an email form, um, and that was available. So we could have taken the our platform and said to the dealership. This is how many emails are going to you. We forced the consumer to fill in a form. But we found that that was massively restrictive and a pain point for the consumer. Consumer, in those days, these big phones weren't around. I didn't want to fill in forms. Didn't want to. They wanted to phone the dealership because traditionally that's what they did out of the magazine, is they picked up the magazine, they opened it, there was a dealership advert and there was a phone number. So that behavior in the consumer set was already there. Coming onto the internet, we thought, well, how do we take that behavior, replicate it on the internet, because we know that the consumers are transitioning and new consumers are coming online, um, rather than creating this email form for the then traditional consumer who doesn't know too much about the internet to uh, uh, to fill in. That's a bit restrictive. So uh, so that was the the uh, one of the ways we thought about it. The other way we thought about it was... Um, we needed to be able to tell our customer what the difference in value was between the magazine consumer that was calling them and the internet consumer that was calling them so that we could uh, tell them why we justify what we charge them for their internet product um, versus the magazine product. Um, And you can't do that with an email form. There's no email form in the magazine, so we could. It, there was no comparison between the two. That's such an important point,
1: eh? Because if you didn't have that, how would you justify your price? And I think with anything new in the market, like Matt Brown Media, as you, as we were talking about just before we started recording, was in the business of designing and producing and distributing shows for people, right, or for brands, more importantly. And so I'm in this unique situation where the market's gone in a particular direction, as we we're talking about. around every you know, you're listening to podcasts, and basically everyone that I meet these days is listening to podcasts. But there's no data to support it. Yeah. In other words, to justify it. So there's some strategic stuff that you know, as we were talking about earlier. And unfortunately, you guys weren't there. You missed out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but my point being is that you have to have data. It meant not all the time, but I think it helps to have data points to suggest that a market is either going in a particular direction or to justify your price. So for instance, this is what I want to talk to you about is pricing because it's the biggest problem that I have at the moment in my business because I actually don't know what to charge. I don't know what the market wants. I've gone, I've heard everything from, you know, 44,000 Rand per episode all the way down to you know eighty thousand rand for a season of eight. So in that um, you know that paradigm, you, you know, or that sort of scale, you've got kind of different types of buyers. So if IBM, for instance, would be a top of the pyramid buyer, but then at the bottom you might have a small legal company, right, or a smaller legal company who doesn't have those budgets. So when you're trying to move people into this new proposition, or whether you have a new proposition that's now servicing a new need for the market. And there's almost, well, basically in my case, there's, there's very few competitors. There's indirect competitors, but nobody direct. Uh, certainly none with uh, the story that I have in terms of the building the Matt Brown show and everything that's gone along with that. So how, what have you learned in terms of justifying a price? or under, and, and more importantly, when you've got different types of buyers with different types of capital to outlay, the proposition is the same. But you have, you know what I mean? Like you've got different, potentially package one, two, three. But even then, like, what do you charge? Because the process of delivering that value is fundamentally the same. So you've got a choice. You either try and serve the whole market or you simply say, listen, this is what we're worth. We're not going to discount our prices and we're going to charge 495,000 Rand for a season. What advice do you have there?
0: So um, when it comes to pricing, you've got to juxtapose your pricing. in terms of the market that you are swimming in, or the sw- you know the sandpit that you're playing in, now that's not necessarily a competitive statement. Okay, so I'm not for a second saying you've got to price yourself based on your competitors, because because that's that for me uh, creates a commoditized product anyway, and uh, everybody loses. So um uh, uh, you've got to you've got to price yourself based on the sandpit that you're playing in, and I always like to think about. Uh, pricing in terms of uh, what would your alternative be? Not necessarily competitive. So, touching a consumer in the absence of our product, what would their alternative be? And if you figure out all of those alternatives mm-hmm. and you put those against each other, mm-hmm. you've got a guide to where your 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 pricing can and can't be. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the alternatives for a car seller in the absence of auto traders product is to advertise on Google. What would it cost a dealership to get a consumer from Google through to into their dealership and to sell them a car? If you understand the cost of that you've got a, an, uh, an idea of where the market wants to play in terms of pricing. And, uh, and, and, and I think often, often businesses get stuck in this direct competitor set, whereas I don't think it's limited to that direct competitor set because we're all dealing with consumers of content. And those consumers of the content don't necessarily come through the same channels and the same delivery systems all the time. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know enough about podcasts like you do. Not yet, <laughs> but uh, but I would imagine, and I'm you know I'm guessing, and you know, n- you know, knock please me, guess. Knock, I do a lot of guessing. Knock, knock me with that mic if you if you think I'm going the wrong way. But um, I would imagine that. Um, podcasts are about touching consumers with really good quality quality content and uh, uh, it would be well the the customer that wants to put on a show how many how many customers is he going to touch and in the absence of that show what would it cost him to touch that consumer in a similar way very difficult question to answer. Yeah, that's why we have consultants, and that's why they give you the wrong advice. <laughs> yeah. Use consultants, but don't whatever you do, use them. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Nothing cool. against consultants. We've had a, we've had a couple in here, and, and a lot of them have nine nine times out of ten they give really good advice.
1: <laughs> He's being nice. Um, okay. So the other thing I love to talk to you about is. Um, now that you 've understood your strategy you 're executing, you understand your journey you 've got the data touch points, you have data to justify you know the value that you 're getting from print or digital, like whatever that means to you in your business um, as a listener um essentially what you 're effectively promising the market is change right so it 's one thing to get them there, but the other thing is if you want someone to change and they do change then you have to be ready for that change yourself.
0: Right? And if it's in the technology world, um, you've got to have your technology ducks in a row um, You know, to move at the speed that, uh, uh, with which your customer or consumer wants to move. Um, because once they switch on, and we've got many, many uh, uh, dealer customers and consumers who uh, are pushing the boundaries, they're pushing our boundaries um, and constantly getting that feedback. I think we said it earlier on, it's constantly getting that feedback and having your technology, uh, whatever that may be. And it doesn't have to necessarily be, uh, you know, coded technology. Um, You know, you just have to be able to service those customers with technology that helps them to uh, 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 consume what they want to consume um, while you're working on the next big thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about how you manage this financially, though, because if you're going to deploy a new service or transition you know um, like you did from print to digital you know you've got different types of revenue data financial data that's coming back from the markets so one piece of advice I was given once was to set up a modified cash flow statement which enables you as the entrepreneur slash business owner to essentially manage in real time on a, literally on a 24-hour basis to monitor how this new thing is happening in the market and um, is that advice that you, were subs- would, that you would subscribe to and but was there a different way that you managed the financial side of the business, uh, being accountable as CEO, of course, <laughs> um, when you you know transitioned your customer
0: essentially from print to digital? Um, so managing the financial side of a business is extremely important. Um, you know, I'm probably telling uh, speech, speaking to the converted, um, uh, but at the end of the day, what you're trying to achieve. Um, uh, sometimes outpaces the the the, the, the financial short term capital requirement um and and financial models help a lot with that and uh, we run them all the time so so you know um albert einstein said uh and so did steve jobs and um uh, i can't remember the third person but Matt Brown? He, Maybe Matt Brown, yes. That um, that simplicity is on the far side of complexity. So, if you think about that for a second, what does that mean? In order to make it look simple, we made it look simple. If you read that article, wow, gee whiz, that looks simple. But it was definitely on the far side of complexity. And uh, uh, I think often entrepreneurs don't build enough complexity in the underlying part of their business, understanding every metric, understanding how consumers are coming through their uh, their world, um, uh, setting up Google Analytics in the right way, setting up uh, um, their... um, uh, measurement metrics, cash flow statements, business models—those are all complex things. And um, and in that complexity, the far side of that is simplicity. From the outside in, it looks simple, and you've got to make it feel simple for your for your end consumer. But uh, but underlying that is that complexity. And we definitely have underlying order trader is a hell of a lot of complexity and, uh, 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 and cash flow statements, business models, capital requirements, all of that stuff plays a very important role in getting to the other side of complexity.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that is a great um, kind of segue, I think, into the final part of the interview, uh, which is just the kind of the rapid fire question stuff. So feel free to, uh, yeah, to take more like time. AK-47 stuff. Yeah, I know. It's good. I've got the shotgun here. Are you ready? <laughs>
0: oh, shotgun stuff.
1: <stop. laughs> okay. If you could get into a time machine and go back to, um, let's say, instead of when you were 20, right? <laughs> uh, but when you start your first day as CEO. Oh, can you remember that day? <sighs> yes, I do. You're there right now? Yeah. Okay. Clicking my fingers. Right. So as you remember that time... If you were in a time machine, you could go back to yourself at, on your first day and give yourself one piece of advice, knowing everything that you know now and the journey that you've been on. Right?
0: What would that one piece of advice be? Trust your limbic system. Okay, please elaborate. So um, we all make decisions um, emotionally. Okay, and I'm not saying make emotional decisions. That's not what I'm saying. But but um, I would have trusted my gut and acted on that a lot more and a lot quicker so we spoke all about data and complexity and all of that stuff but at the end of the day um uh, on the other side of all of that complexity most of the time my gut feeling was right and what signals do
1: you personally work with because i'm always fascinated about decision making which of course is the ultimate power when it comes to being an entrepreneur business owner right is if you decide to do something that's your ultimate power and if you make a great decision fantastic if you make a cuck decision then that's a whole other story so if you're thinking about and i've had this come up on the show before so i'm interested to get your view just to unpack it a little bit more like how do you trust your gut like is there a physiological thing is it the fact that you're um in diffuse thinking mode in the shower you know and you get a really amazing inspiring thoughts and so what works for you like how i mean if someone doesn't know how to trust their gut how do
0: you do it so um i i always i always maintain that um in a state of change you should always be feeling uncomfortable if you are not uncomfortable you're making the wrong decisions so so for me that's one of the signals that i'm making the right decisions is i'm feeling uncomfortable um uh, and then I go and I uh, seek out data to go and either justify or uh, um, or put a negative view on what I'm feeling. Uh, and often that data isn't 100% um, there. So you might get 70, 80% of, of the data that either supports your, your gut feeling or doesn't support your gut feeling. But I think the first signal is I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling uncomfortable. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, so after feeling uncomfortable, then you start to understand whether it's a good uncomfortable feeling or a bad uncomfortable feeling. I've often had uh, situations where uh, uh, my team um, describe things to me and we make a decision um, uh, you know, on a particular thing. And I'm feeling uncomfortable, but the sense of discomfort is one that this is not the right thing to do. Um, so, so I think that the limbic system to try and turn that into logic is very difficult to do. Uh, you know, you ask yourself why you love your girlfriend or your wife, or it's very difficult to describe that. So, and that's why you battle with trying to describe this gut feeling is because you're trying to describe something that is almost uh, indescribable by, by, by human beings brain. We're
1: talking about decision-making, right? So or trusting your limbic system as you describe it. Um, and so I think one of one of the greatest qualities for a successful entrepreneurs that I've interviewed is that they know what opportunities to say yes to and what opportunities to say no to. So when it comes to decision-making, um, how do you decide, like moving forward now, like how, how are you going to decide what's the right opportunity? Uh, or let me rephrase, that what is the... Uh, What is an opportunity that might be right, but it might not be right for you? How do you decide which opportunity
0: to pursue? Um, So going back to the gut feeling in the limbic system. So you'll get this uncomfortable feeling um, uh, and you you have an idea um, and you haven't made a decision yet. And part of what I said was, you go and you collect the data to either support or refute what you what you are needing to decide. Um, uh, now, that data comes from particular places, and um, most of the time, that data comes from counsel that you seek from people that you trust, and that's how I make decisions. Um, uh, and, And that's why it's very important for leaders and entrepreneurs to understand you're not an island. You can't do everything by yourself and you can't come up with everything by yourself and you won't be able to make all of the right decisions by yourself. The counsel of other people are extremely important in making those decisions and to steering you and navigating down the path that will eventually lead to success. And that's why my team... Are vital in my world. I've got eight people in this business that provide counsel for me every single day of my life, uh, and then people outside of the business that provide counsel. So I'll ring them up, and 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 it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't. It it could literally be a small small thing that you're thinking about. But if you put all of those little pieces together. You, you see that there's quite a big decision and there's quite a big path that uh, uh, that, that decision is important on. So, 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 the, so the collecting of that data nine times out of ten is from other human beings. Um, and then hard data, of course, but, uh, but other human beings usually will steer you in the right direction. Does that answer your question? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So when I say the word successful, who do you think of and Why? Um, Steve Jobs, recent, more recently, Elon Musk, um, uh, Henry Ford, the Wright brothers, um, and for various reasons. Um, and so the answer, the the, the answer why? Uh, Steve Jobs, just because of his drive to simplicity and uh, what is created in uh, um, in Apple. And uh, I'm an absolute Apple cult fanatic everything i mean i broke my apple watch the other day um so that's why i'm wearing my traditional watch but uh, um uh i broke i broke the apple watch but everything is i've got apple tvs i've got you know uh, I, I dabble with all the apple devices so i'm an absolute apple cult fanatic so so steve jobs for me from a simplicity point of view um uh, elon musk um because of his drive to make the world a better place and um and he has he he made i forget the exact number i think it was 100 100 and something million us dollars out of paypal and he risked all of that he could have gone to sit on an island he risked all of that for one vision that he had and that was to make the world a better place and and you can see it in his actions he's genuinely wanting to make the world uh, fossil fuel free, uh, uh, um, you know. Sunlight drives our energy, and um, um, and he's wanting to escape the planet to to go to Mars, and and it's those things that 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 I I uh, like, and f- fact that he's South African, um, yeah, man. <laughs> um, and then uh, um, and then if we go uh, further back, um, the Wright brothers. Um, now, the Wright brothers didn't invent flying, believe it or not. Um, a, uh, uh, another character did. And um, the problem, the, the thing that the Wright brothers really did well was they knew how to take their product to market. And that's why they got the accolade of inventing flying. They took their product, they knew how to take their product to market. And there's a couple of, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Tesla, Nikola Tesla versus Albert Einstein, I think it was, um, uh, 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 in the invention of electricity. Tesla's idea is the one we use today, but he didn't know how to bring it to market.
1: Yeah, there's a, you must listen to the Tom Asaka interview where we talk about this. I'll send you the link. Uh, if, by the way, if you guys are, haven't listened to that episode yet, please go back through the serial listing because it's literally, we cover this exact thing that George was just saying about if you're an entrepreneur and you come up with an idea, it's about spreading that idea and actually letting go of the attachment to that it's a whole thing amazing episode so go check that out
0: I've got more respect for people that can bring something to market you said it earlier on action uh, uh, execution bring something to market than someone who has this brilliant life-changing idea but just doesn't bring it to market Yeah, absolutely last question for you George Uh, what's in it for you like why do you do what you do that is probably the question that nobody asks me ever why do I do what I do? Um, and honestly, there's two reasons. Um, and I've thought this one this one through before. So uh, uh, the first thing is I want to change the way in which consumers buy cars in South Africa to a place where it is painless. So, so so, changing the car buying consumers, uh, the way in which car, uh, uh, consumers buy cars. And the second reason I do what I do is these people inside here. I love coming to this office every single day of my life. If it's for nothing else, but just to be around them. Because uh, we've built a team over the last decade, uh, which is almost 200 people strong, that come to work not necessarily and everybody's got to earn a salary. But I think in nine times out of 10, the cases why people come to work at AutoTrader is because of AutoTrader and not because of the salary. And that for me is, is, a, is, a, is a massive drive for what I do, what I do. George,
1: that concludes your time in the hot seat on the Map Round Show. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor to to basically get to know you and to kind of get your
0: story on record and to share that with uh, with entrepreneurs around the world. Thanks, Matt. And, uh, you know, good on you for pushing the boundaries. You're, uh, you know, one of the leaders in, uh, uh, in bringing podcasting to South Africa. So I hope you massively, massively successful. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Hey guys, so news
1: about the Matt Brown Show and Matt Brown Media this week. Tickets have been selling like hotcakes for the cryptocurrencies, blockchain, bitcoin and the future of money event in Cape Town. It will be held on Thursday, the 24th of August at the Auditorium at the Nedbank Clock Tower in the Clock Tower Precinct at the V&A Waterfront in Cape Town and will run from 5 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. This event will sell out quickly. There's only a few more tickets left, so book your tickets now. Do not wait. It's qkt.io forward slash crypto. That's www.qkt. Dot io forward slash crypto to book your tickets now this is an event not to be missed and many people missed out on the johannesburg event so please don't wait the good news is that i am doubling the size of the event so i'm expecting upwards of about 300 people which will include a mix of blue chip clients entrepreneurs and of course the media there will be a cash bar and food available and the session will include a bit of a networking uh, portion too so I will see you there on Thursday, the 24th of August, in Cape Town. And one more thing, guys, if you haven't yet checked out our community for podcasters and podcasting in general, it's the it's you can catch it at getpodcasting.co.za Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Matt Brown show. It's been an absolute privilege having you with us. And remember, if you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu or our guests and the full show notes, all you have to do is head on over to digitalkungfu.co.za and you can catch us all over the social media graph. So till next time.